I think we're going to war for real. I'll tell you one little story that I probably have never told anybody before. We got hit with a NVA sapper company supported by infantry. It's not easy and you know, that one was tough, but fortunately it worked out for us. Welcome to War Stories, conversational military history. For all of you War Story super fans out there, first off, we appreciate you. Secondly, if you want to directly support the show, consider becoming a patron. All proceeds go directly into creating and producing better and better content for all listeners. Our patrons have early access to every episode, their own patron-only shows. They can submit questions for our guests and even have some behind-the-scenes access with Sayer and I as we plan out the future of War Stories. The link to join is in the show notes, or you can head to our website, warstories.co. This episode is brought to you by Jill Hare. LMFT of Free Flow Counseling, proudly serving veterans, first responders, and their loved ones. Learn more about Jill and her work surrounding PTSD and trauma recovery at jillhair.com. What's going on, everyone? Preston Stewart and Sayer Payne with War Stories, joined today by Jim Horacek. How was it that time? Did that I... was perfect. That was... Okay, good. <laughs> um, we were struggling with the name before, the, the pronunciation. But uh, Jim, thanks so much for doing this. Really looking forward to the conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Big picture, we're going to talk um, kind of some intelligence, some analysts, uh, analyst work during the global war on terror. But would you mind giving just a little background on yourself, kind of what you've been up to? Sure. Um, so I joined the CIA in, um, it was October of 1999. Um, I got recruited out of grad school. I went to George Washington University in D.C., got my master's in security policy. And I actually hadn't been thinking about joining the CIA. I, I knew I wanted to do something. Um, my background was all in the former Soviet Union. Um, especially ethnic conflict in the former Soviet Union. Uh, I was fascinated by uh, just all of the nationalities and all of the centuries long <laughs> conflicts that they had there. Sure. Uh, so I, I, I also thought that would be kind of a good niche and it turned out to be, it was. So when um, they had a career fair, all the intelligence services came to GW and uh, I walked by with my resume and I say, are you guys interested in somebody who speaks Russian and knows about ethnic conflict? And they said, yes, we are. <laughs> so I never ended up actually even formally applying. I gave them my resume. They came back, they invited me to an interview the next week and, uh, and hired, got a conditional offer and said, here, as long as you get your clearance in, um, we'll hire you. So wow. that's how I got, got into the agency. Um, when I, when, after I, when they got the conditional offer, I was like, yeah, this could be a lot of fun. Um, I had interned at the state department, was thinking about doing that, but um, having worked at the State Department, I was, I was like, no, I don't really want to do this. It's, it's pretty inept. Um, but the agency, the agency really appealed to me because um, they are, the mission was to not be wedded to policy. So they said, be the skunk in the garden party was kind of the phrase that they told us. Don't be afraid to speak truth to power. Uh, if the administration's policies are not going well, feel free to tell them that. And of course, that's what ended up happening during the Iraq war a lot. Um, and it was difficult because we came under a lot of fire for that. But I really liked that mission. It was uh, to speak the truth. And uh, and I think we've gotten away from that a little bit now. But it, in 99, 2000, that was uh, that was still pretty, pretty held up there. So so that's how I got in the agency. Um, I, my first couple of years, I was working on the non-Russian republics of the former Soviet Union, mainly Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and the Caucasus. And uh, it was actually, it was, it was kind of fun. My, uh, I was still in orientation. It was a three-day orientation. And on the last day, I'm driving home from work. And I heard that uh, 
they, some gunmen had gone into the Armenian parliament and they killed the prime minister and the speaker. Wow. And they hadn't told me where I was going to be working exactly. Yeah, I knew I was in the office of Russian European analysis, but I didn't know where. So I kind of wondered to myself, hey, is, I wonder if that's going to affect me. Well, the next morning I go and I meet with HR. They walk me to my new team. I walk in on their morning team meeting and they all start laughing. And I say, what's going on, guys? And they're like, well, you're our new Armenia analyst. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they said we were going to put the new guy on there because nothing ever happened in Armenia. Oh, <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, so here you go. And um, actually, I had, a, I had a really great team chief uh, who said, hey, you know as much about Armenia as the rest of us do. Why don't you just run with this? So I, I'm like, I think it was my third day in the office. I wrote uh, for the president's daily briefing, um, which is no a, that's like the, the big thing to, you know, yeah. to get in the president's it's the book. dossier. Yeah, they have yeah, to read so, that. We're always wondering what the heck yeah, are they that, getting well, briefed this, every day. Yeah, this is for the Clinton administration, and um, and it really it wasn't a briefing at that time. He he liked to get it and just read it. So my article went in in there. So I'm thinking this is great. I'm in the agency. I'm writing for the president on my third day. Uh, this is awesome. Moving then, on up, yeah, yeah. And then everything kind of settled down in Armenia as my job after that, and uh, and. I was telling you before the show that I was kind of looking for ways to, to get them to go to war so I'd have something to do. <laughs> and they never did while I was on the account. Um, but uh, so then I, at that point, I was, I was kind of looking around going, hey, what are some of the hotter accounts? Um, when the second Intifada in uh, Palestine and Israel uh, started in 2000, I volunteered to work the task force there. I worked a couple of night shifts. Um, my job was to count how many Palestinians were getting killed every night <laughs> during my shift. And the numbers kept going up, but the administration's interest started going down because um, they were like, well, this is just the new normal now. So hmm. they eventually just kind of disbanded that task force. So when 9-11 happened, um, I was still looking for something else to do. I was actually on vacation in uh, Utah visiting some friends there. And uh, we were supposed to fly back to D.C. that day on uh, September 11th. And um, my, the, my friend who we were staying with, well, you know, woke us up in the morning. He's like, you guys aren't going anywhere. Uh, they hit, some planes hit the, the World Trade Center and, and then the Pentagon. And uh, we watched all of that happen from Utah. So we were actually stuck in Utah for, uh, I think it was about five days uh, yeah. until they opened up everything again. So I checked in with my boss and said, you know, coming back, uh, came back and, and they, they said, well, we got this daily product that we're putting together saying what every country is doing in response to to 9-11. So I kind of wrote a piece on what Armenia and Azerbaijan, of course, they were like, we fully support what uh, the U.S. and whatever it needs. They can have overflight rights. They can do anything they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, it just kind of settled down again. And that's when the call came out for volunteers to work in the Office of Ter- Terrorism Analysis. Um, I mentioned before the show that on September 10th, there were 40 analysts in the Counterterrorism Center, mainly doing support for operations like direct targeting support. Um, and then on September 12th, 13th, uh, literally they drew out on the back of a, of a napkin. And it, this isn't just folklore, it really happened. They were meeting going, what if they told basically the person who was the group chief, a second line supervisor, you're, they're like, you're now going to be an office director. What would your ideal office look like? And she just kind of sketched it out right there. Wow. And, and then they put out the call for analysts to go and fill those positions. So we went up to, I think it was 400. Um, and so I was one of the guys who said, yeah, put, put me in. So, and they just sourced that internally. It's not like, I mean, that's not a hiring spree in that window. No, no, it was all, I mean, the, the hiring spree then followed that, but the, it takes about a year to get somebody into the agency. Um, 
because you've got to, uh, you're not only they got to interview you and, and, and do all that, but then you got to get your, your clearances and, um, you know, that, that could take some time, uh, depending in, yeah, they actually, they, they sped up that process too. And you got to get polygraphed and all, all the psyche valve, all that kind of stuff to, to get in. So yeah, initially it was all internally. Um, they were pulling from, you know, you know the, like, they would say in a couple of cases, they brought whole teams over. Uh, they said, let's keep the team together and keep that team dynamic. But um, just, so they took like the European leadership analysts, the guys that knew about like the French president and the German president and all that were like, well, that's not as important right now. You guys are now moving over here. And they took the whole team <laughs> and, they're, oh, and they're like, and you can't, you can't move back for a year. You're stuck. <laughs> yeah. so, so those guys Same weren't people, different mission set almost. Yeah. Those guys, a lot of those guys, you know, weren't so happy about that and went back yeah, after their year rotation because they were, that was their expertise. Sure. But then there are a whole bunch of us that were like, no, we'll do whatever you want us to do. So um, and they actually, and you know, it was great because because they sketched that out on a, on a napkin. They uh, a lot of times it, it didn't play out the way they thought they did. So the the first branch they put me on was a group called Terrace Facilities Branch, and what they thought that branch would do is identify. So we so we're by this point we're already in Afghanistan, starting to bomb targets there, um, and they're like, well, "You guys aren't going to do that. We already have guys that are doing targeting support for that." But we want you to look around the rest of the world and see where there might be some other facilities that the terrorists have. And so we did that and we looked around and we're like, no, really, they're only in Afghanistan. <laughs> That's really the only um, kind of safe haven. Yeah. I'm curious. And just before you expand upon that, sure. when they're saying look around the world for wh wherever the terrorists are, what was the definition of terrorist for you to go it, on? It got time? really expansive at that point. Um, of course, the administration kind of led that. You know, it, it turned into the global war on terror, which we I hated that uh, analysis. Right. Really, what we were looking at that we were looking at that. So the, prior to 9/11, and even, when the counterterrorism center was actually that counterterrorism center was actually set up in the 80s, and it was mainly looking at Hamas and Hezbollah. So mm -hmm. uh, the Shia. Uh, organizations sure and then of course then al-qaeda begins to rise and so we had been following them um it was as you know some, some of the attacks that they the coal and cobar towers all those things we've been following them um you know and then of course 9 11 happens so it's we were still we still kind of had that legacy of the shia terrorist groups but then we were mainly looking at sunni affiliates there but they also did throw in like farc and even IRA, um, mm. they still had a team looking at them. That was really interesting too, because the, the IRA sort of got the message, and like they—that's when the peace accords happened. They're like, no, no, we we do not want to be on this list. This terrorism <laughs> blanket. I never like, thought yeah. about that. Yeah, all, well, all their funding timeline and connection. Yeah, all their funding dried up from the United States. That's you know, all the guys in Boston, all the Irish guys in Boston were giving them money, and they uh, that that became you know a taboo. To be funding a terrorist organization after 9-11 and so the ira was sort of forced to come to the table at that point huh. um so we sort of had we had a what they call the rest of the world group that was following kind of all these other groups but um we were mainly charged with keeping an eye still on the traditional groups Hamas, hezbollah seeing if they were going to take advantage of any of this but then identifying the sunni threats and uh and, and that's where we came to it's like really there's nothing on the scale of what what's in afghanistan we wrote a paper on that 
And they go, okay, great. And they disbanded our branch. <laughs> so like, we don't need you anymore. <laughs> mm. but, but good on them for being flexible and saying, you know, we could use your resources elsewhere. Uh, so I was voluntold uh, to go be the executive assistant to the deputy director of the Counterterrorism Center, um, a great guy named Bruce Pease uh, at the time. And uh, they said, you're going to support him and you're also going to have the congressional support portfolio which was huge at that time, obviously, because Congress is wanting to know, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? As we had the lead in Afghanistan. And, uh, and then of course, then the 9-11 reviews all started. Both the CIA did an internal one, and then eventually the 9-11 commission was, was stood up. And so we were supporting both. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were doing um, weekly briefings for the, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. So my job was to kind of get the, the briefing books ready, identify who was going to do that, uh, prep them, and, and go with them to the Hill for those, those testimonies. And we would do it jointly with the FBI, um, which was also interesting because uh, they were kind of getting hammered as well, obviously, yeah, on sure. 9-11, so to, to see all that. So, so that, was, that was really interesting. I was also there when the Department of Homeland Security was stood up. Um, which was a major surprise. It, uh, it initially was going to be an office of Homeland Security out of the ah. West Wing. And that's what all of our guys who were it was in part of the, the setup for that, helping with the plan, that's what they thought. And then literally overnight, I forget what bad press piece came out that criticized the administration for not doing something more prior to 9-11. And all of a sudden overnight, it became the, the largest single bureaucracy in, in the United States government. Interesting. Um, Kind of from Surprise the papers, the lighting the fire in a way. Yep. Oh, it, it was, I was actually, I was telling my kids last night because they knew I was coming on here and, and my oldest is 21. So she you know, was real little when all this was going on. Sure. Um, and, but they were kind of asking me about that. What, you know, what was it like? And I was like, it, it was really interesting listening to the news on the way in and know that was what you're going to be working on that day. Sure. Um, and, it, and, and that and literally, because that's what Congress did. Congress you know, they read the New, the New York Times, Washington Post, listened to the news, and whatever they heard, then they would go like, hey, what's this? And, and um, the, the most interesting time for that was, I mean, you guys have probably heard about, there's something, there's something called the Phoenix Memo. It was, um, it got, came out in the press that the Phoenix FBI field office had sent a memo to FBI headquarters prior to 9-11 saying that there were Arab uh, pilots taking flight training in Arizona um, that were, they wanted to learn how to take off and fly, but not land. Hmm. And we, I'm, we, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to, like I'm laughing because it's like, are you serious? That, <laughs> yeah. like, that's a very specific. That's um, a very, yeah. So it ended up, I, I don't think we didn't, we never proved that to be related to any of the 9-11 stuff. Um, the bigger hmm. problem was the FBI, the FBI is still struggling with this, you know, 22 years later. Um, they, at the time, prior to 9-11, they were organized regionally. Uh, the field offices supported the U.S. attorney in each area. And so the field office in Phoenix was giving that information to the U.S. attorney's office in, in Phoenix. And they really didn't have a great communication system even to send back to FBI headquarters saying, hey, we're seeing this. And then there was nobody at FBI headquarters. There wasn't like a, a, an analyst group, a director of analysis there to take that information and try to piece it together. 
So no one, this thing kind of just went unheard. No one saw it or acted on it. And then it came out and uh, that, that we actually were going to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence that day. And uh, the question became, hey, was CIA ever made aware of the existence of this memo? And the answer was no, because they, there was no mechanism for them to even share that with us. Mm -hmm. So the first person in CIA to receive that memo was me. Because <laughs> no I called over and said, you better send this to us because we're going up with you to talk to the committee and they're going to yeah. ask us this. And they faxed it over. Uh, so yeah, they saw faxes back then. <laughs> and, and, Isn't that what's sort of unique about this? I mean, maybe you want to delve into it a little bit of the sort of distinction of the FBI and the CIA. I mean, you as an analyst, you're talking about Azerbaijan and all these other stands and whatnot and speaking Russian, how, how often or, you know, to me, the point of a CIA analyst is not to understand the inner workings of within the borders of the United States. So, you know, I don't know how yeah. that communication breakdown worked back then, even how it works now. I'm sure there's still sort of issues with all of that. There are. Um, and that's a great question because, yeah, because of the U.S. Constitution, um, we're set up differently. Uh, you know, we're not like uh, the British service or most intelligence services around the world where they have what we call an, an internal service and an external service. Uh, so think MI5, MI6. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the internal service is responsible for internal security, obviously. So any domestic threats, the external service is, is looking outward. Uh, so by, by law, uh, CIA is not allowed to do any activities against U.S. persons. So that's defined as citizens or legal, legal residents. Mm -hmm. um, now, if there are um, foreigners that come into the country, uh, we are able to work with the FBI to monitor their activities, but we have to have the FBI with us because the FBI is responsible for everything else, basically anything that goes on within the United States and its territories, they have responsibility for. Um, and that, prior 9-11, there really wasn't a, I mean, other than counterintelligence, so, you know, watching Russian spies, you know, just think mm -hmm. Cold War, um, we cooperated very sure. closely there. I guess that makes sense, yeah. On, on that one. Uh, but other than that, there, there wasn't a whole lot. And, and yeah, the ball got dropped um, because there were foreigners in the, the country that neither group was really looking at, or if we were seeing it, that we weren't necessarily working with the FBI. I mentioned they weren't really set up for that. Um, the FBI's mission changed overnight on 9-11. Prior to 9-11, they were supposed to solve crimes after they happened. And then after 9-11, it mm -hmm. was prevent crimes from happening. Mm -hmm. And you can see that's a totally different yeah. dynamic. Yeah. And, and you're right. They still struggle with that today. You, you can see that with all the, the things that are in the news. Um, you know, how far do they, they run informants? How far do they push things you know, to bordering on entrapment? Um, they're still struggling with that. I mentioned their communications network was not set up to be a centrally run group. Uh, they actually borrowed CIA's uh, infrastructure. Uh, to arc because we we do have uh, what we call national resources groups, you know, CIA offices in different cities to to do the work of you know, working on those foreigners that are there, and so we already had that network, and they just kind of piggybacked on top of that because they didn't have anything. And then the biggest thing was that you're right, the culture of analysis they didn't have that. Um, it's very much driven by guys with badges and guns, and they. They actually, what actually, one of my bosses, Phil Mudd, you, you see him on CNN, I think, all the time now. 
Um, he was the deputy director of the Office of Terrorism Analysis. He was the guy I was mainly taking up to, uh, to brief Congress because they loved him because he was an analyst and could really tell a story well, mm -hmm. whereas the, the other leaders were ops guys and and they didn't really like Congress, so <laughs> they did so, and they could tell, you know. So they always were, were first. They were like, "Why isn't the director of the central of the counterterrorism center here?" And then there was like, and then Phil would be there, and then they were like, "Okay, we don't want the director of counterterrorism." <laughs> Somebody else. Phil. <laughs> um, but he actually went over to the FBI on rotation to set up their analysis group, mm. um, and they really struggled because they weren't guys. They, a lot of CIA people came over to help them, and they brought in the internal people. We sort of trained them, but they weren't guys with guns and badges, and they were like, you're just, you know, we always talked about that in the agency, how we're just analysts, but, you know, for there, they really weren't just analysts, and no one really cared about them, so uh, I don't know how that how that's progressed to today, but um, it really was a cultural thing that the FBI had to to struggle with, it will struggle with. And I think they're still struggling with it today. I don't mean to put you on the spot with this question, but do you know if that gap in coordination was um, was leveraged by Al-Qaeda for 9-11 or did it just happen to work out in their favor? I don't know for sure uh, that they, now we always, the US government has a, a reputation for being inept in general, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I don't know if they tried to exploit that. Sure. Um, they definitely took advantage of the, the system in terms of you know immigration and TSA and not nor no TSA mm -hmm. uh, you know to exploit that but um, yeah and I'm not sure what what they say today um, yeah I'm sorry with that I know you were more tied in with the 9/11 commission and all of that and I, I think I think I read it in high school or college or yeah it's actually pretty accurate it's pretty accurate I, the the number one quote I take away from that book was they said that 9/11 uh, was a failure of imagination and that's that's 100% correct. Um, I'm a big World War II buff too. I'm going to go back and listen to all your episodes. All right. <laughs> uh, and Mike is too. And Mike and I went, um, Mike Croissant, who was, you've mm -hmm. interviewed before, recommended me. Um, he and I went to the 70th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Uh, they had a, wow. a, a National Park Service symposium. Uh, and, and we went and they had, at the time, there were still about 150 guys there, the survivors um, that we got to meet and talk to. And it was fantastic. We just yeah. loved it. Um, and the question came up uh, comparing 9-11 to Pearl Harbor. And Pearl Harbor, we had all the intel that was going to happen. And then, of course, this is this CIA was created because of Pearl Harbor. Because um, we had all the intel and no one believed it. Or the ones who did, they had, you know, several different groups doing intelligence, the army, the Navy, you know, everybody's had their own intelligence shops and that's why it became the central intelligence agency. Um, but we had the intel, we just, we either ignored it or didn't believe it. 9-11, we did not have the information. And 9-11 Ryu came out and showed that. There, unless we had direct penetration of that those cells or direct access to senior leadership, which we didn't, because it was tightly compartmented even within senior leadership of Al-Qaeda. Uh, we wouldn't have known. And, but we, the, we wrote, and this is in, in the public record, we wrote a PDB, can't remember how many months before 9-11, saying we're getting, we, we believe that Al-Qaeda is set to strike the United States. And we listed kind of all the ways that we thought they could, they could hit us. And they were all kind of all the traditional ways to include hijacking aircraft. But we thought that was traditional hijacking of aircraft, hijacking them, holding them for ransom, doing something sure. like that. We did not think 
fly those planes into buildings. Mm. Um, and, and that we just didn't imagine it. We didn't, we, that's why I think the failure of imagination is just such a great way to, to put that. But you're in a tough spot too. I, it's one of those things where now we can look back and say like, why didn't you think of it? Um, look at the damage it can do, right? And you can piece all the, you can after the fact, piece all these different things together to say, come on, it's right there. But that's, that's one of what thousands of threats on a given day that you're trying to um, allocate resources against, not just within your own organization, but if, if, if there's something called out as a major threat in Florida, resources have to go down. You can't just know about it. You have to do something about it. And those are all limited resources. So that's actually a really, yeah, that's a great segue into, so after I finished my, my six month tour in the front office, uh, I went to Phil Mud, and he's like, Hey, Jim, you've been doing a great job. Where do you want to go, uh, within the counterterrorism center? Cause you're, and I said, well, I, actually, I was kind of thinking about working on the Hezbollah team because I remember Kofor Black, who was the director of CTC. He always said that that was if, if we went up against Hezbollah, that would be the Super Bowl of terrorism is what he called it, because they were better financed, you know, had direct Iranian support, all, all that stuff. Um, but we weren't, there was no indication, like Hezbollah was actually like, hey, we don't want to get in on this one, <laughs> you know. So Phil was like, ah, there's nothing going on there. You don't want to go do that. Um, he's like, how about working on our weapons of mass destruction team? I was like, I don't know anything about weapons of mass destruction, you know, I'm, I'm just a poli-sci history guy. And he's like, don't worry about that. We've got guys on the team that know the science behind that. Can you track terrorists? Can you identify networks? And I said, yeah, I could do that. They're like, okay, you go do that. So they put me on the weapons of mass destruction team. And that team was interesting because we had um, the ops chief. And this was the cool thing about, this is what I loved about the counterterrorism system. So traditionally, the analysts and the ops guys were completely separate. Um, and that was for counterintelligence reasons. Like the ops guys didn't want the analysts to know anything about the operations that were going on in case we would blow it. Um, and that was a kind of a cultural thing. So when I was in the doing Russia stuff, you know, that was very much still very, the Cold War paradigm. You had the analysts and you had the ops guys. And even though we sat in the same vault, like if I would go talk to one of the ops guys just to say, hey, and then we kind of mentioned something that's going on. A reports officer who is supposed to be the liaison between the analysts and the ops guys would come out and go, hey, hey, you can't talk to him about that. You come talk to me. Hmm. Um, so it was like there was this complete separation. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but then after 9-11, and especially Counterterrorism Center had actually prior to 9-11 even broken down that because the analysts, the 40 guys that were there were doing direct operational support. And the ops guys then learned the value of having those analysts who understand the target, you know, give them suggestions about you know, from everything from questions to be asking your assets to guys who you should be going after to try to get that information. And so when I got into the counterterrorism center, that they were like, yeah, you got, you're on, you're on the team. We love you guys. You're, you're, you're doing everything with us. And the guy who was the ops chief for the WMD group, a guy named Ralph Mont Larson, um, he was, it, it, I loved him. He was like, we used to call them DO Cowboys, Director of Operation Cowboys. These were the old, you know, think spy movies, these okay. are the guys. Yeah, <laughs> there were not there are not many of them left because they you know regulations have driven them all out. You know, but this guy actually yeah. he had he had been declared persona non grata. He was the deputy chief, I think, in Moscow and got persona non grata at, just in the normal tit for tat. You know where they do that sometimes. We kick their guys out, they kick our guys out. Um, and and so he he was there. And actually, at one point, the Russians asked. They were like, "We'd like to meet with your 
counterterrorism WMD guy and he's like, well, sorry, you can't. And they're like, well, why? Well, you kicked him out. <laughs> and they actually rescinded the PNG. Like that never happens so that he could go back. And so he was a legend. The guy was awesome. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I love you guys. I want you in my morning meetings. I want you, you know, you're working direct. I'm not going, I'm not sending my guys anywhere without one of you guys going along with us. And he had been charged directly by the vice president, by Dick Cheney, who, who was convinced that the next attack on the U.S. was going to be using weapons of mass destruction. He was. Dick Cheney was. Dick Cheney was. He thought. Not but this. so then Rolf, then Rolf took that charge because Dick Cheney told Rolf, he's like, if there's a 1% chance that the, the piece of intelligence that you have in front of you could happen, I want you to run it down with weapons of mass destruction. Okay. So it's like, and you're right, we got, especially after 9-11, we got tons of bad reports, oh, you know, because okay. everybody's going, oh, they want, they want terrorism. So let's give them terrorism. So we're sorting through all of this stuff and going, this seems ridiculous. This isn't going to happen. And then Rolf would go, is there a 1% chance? And mm. like, well, yeah. Okay. Well then let's run it down. Um, and, and so that's what we did, but there was a, there used to be something called the, the daily threat report. And it was a compilation of, of every report that came in that you know, had a threat to it. And I, like 99% of it was completely bogus. The administration wanted to see it because they wanted to see for themselves what was what was going on. And we used to have to try to put commentary on there to say, we don't think this is possible. Sure. This is possible. That, so that took up a ton of time, you know, to just kind of do and that. Was this for the code? And I forget the colors already by now, but remember how we would go to the- Yeah, the Homeland totally Security created them. The, That just disappeared at some point, but- It was because we stayed in uh, whatever the middle one was. You know, for, <laughs> exactly, <forever>. yeah. <laughs> Because they would politically, they would never go. Hey, we're safe now. Let's go to green, <laughs> you know. And then it's, it's the, like lockdown terrible. stuff and mask, no mask. It just all of a sudden gets it's all the same. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're like, we're never going to say, hey, this is you can relax now. And they, it's we rarely got the type of intelligence where they kick it up. So, and plus, if you got that kind of intelligence, then you're tipping them that we know what's going on. But um, seriously, so, I don't know. Hey, hey, I'm not a huge fan of the Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> we spend a lot of time trying to deal with them <laughs> on this issue. But yeah, that, that that's exactly what happened. We ended up having to run down a, you know, a bunch of stuff that just wasn't wasn't accurate. Is that how that that sounds like? It's where Iraq starts to kind of lead the forefront. I, I hadn't heard that 1% chance. I understand it. It's one of those things where I know there's, again, when we look back on history, you can piece these things together and say like, well, duh, that's how it should have played out. But yes, if there's a 1% chance a nuclear, chemical, or biological weapon could be used, I understand the desire to let's really make sure we understand it. And of course, that's going to probably zero in on weapon on countries that have them or have a history of them. And, and we were always looking for that. Um, so our group was kind of divided up. We had the guys that were watching Al Qaeda, big Al Qaeda, senior Al Qaeda, um, because they had some some background in, in looking at stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and we were looking, trying to figure out well how far because a lot of that was based in Afghanistan. And of course, you know, then we blew it all up. So it was kind of go back and what what were they doing? Have they reconstituted it? What's what's going on there? And then I was kind of on the other side, which is we're running down all these little threats. And that's actually how I got and started on Iraq was uh, when I came onto the team, we were getting some reporting that um, guys that were associated, they were in Georgia 
but in a part of Georgia that the Georgian government didn't control called the Panhesi Gorge. And it's north, northern Georgia, uh, right on the border of Chechnya. And so that's how foreign fighters were getting into Chechnya. Okay. They go into the gorge and then they go over there. So they had kind of staging areas there. Hmm. And there was a guy there uh, who was talking to a guy in Iran, who was talking to a guy in the Kurdish part of Iraq, also not under Iraq, Iraqi regime control. It was the, above the northern no-fly zone, an area called Kermal. Um, and they were all talking to each other about trying to get some sort of a contact poison. And we think what inspired them was uh, Ibn al-Khattab, who was the leader of the Chechen Mujahideen. Uh, he had been killed by the Russians. And the legend was that he opened a poisoned letter and like dropped dead. Very Russian, yeah. So yeah, yeah, potentially within their capabilities. I even asked him about it, they denied it, of course. <laughs> um, but, uh, but these guys are like, we need something like that. We got to get back at them for doing that. We need to develop something. Well, they were, they were literally like mixing up cyanides, like grinding up cyanide salt and putting it in like a Bengay. <laughs> you know, that's, that's outside the box. Were, yeah. So that's what they were doing. They're all like, they're all in their little hole, like doing that, you know, and then talking to each other about whether it worked or not. And um, a weapon every, of destruction. Yeah. Just yes, missing the M a, part. Everybody always, we actually, we, they, I mean, so here's the difference between analysts and ops guys. Ops guys were the weapons of mass destruction department. Because of things like this, the, op, the analyst group was the chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear group, <laughs> you know, so that we could capture all of those little things. Sure. <laughs> you know, so ops guys were, we're chasing WMD and we're like, we're looking at contact poison, <laughs> you know, There's but uh, that contact poison got a lot of, publicity obviously because well the big thing was at, at some point they supposedly killed a donkey with this stuff and they uh we think they, it, they if they did it was because they like shaved the thing and like lathered it on and because they shaved it poorly it, some of it might have gotten into its system and killed it but they all are like hey we got something we got something and of course then the administration's reading this going oh what is this you know run this down and then, of course, the administration sees, wait, guys in Iraq are doing this too? And we're like, well, it's not the Iraqi regime. It's, they, it's the area. That's why they're there. Happen to be there. Yeah. Yeah. No one controls that area. So that's why they're there. It, it's almost, it sounds like to me, an anarchist cookbook type scenario. Exactly. Yeah. That's what they were using. They were using that and some other stuff, like just stuff that was floating around, trying to different recipes, trying to see if, if you know, what, what would work. Um, you know, what was the best skin, skin penetrate? Was it some veterinary cream? Was it something else? You know, they were they were looking at, at all that stuff. So uh, so then of course that's when it's the president even gets involved in it. And you know, is and so I, I was the lead analyst on that. So I'm writing about what they're doing. And you know, then there was some talk about potentially having operatives go into who so these were guys were uh, North Africans who had kind of quasi legal status in European countries. Um, Brits and the French, they, they would let these guys in and, and then they were like, well, we're not gonna give you official asylum because we can't prove that you have, are, are threatened if you go back to North Africa, but we don't wanna send you back because you might actually get killed. So they left them 
in the semi, this quasi illegal status, gave them European travel documents. And, and these guys go, hey, we want to go fight in Chechnya. So they go to the Pankisi Gorge and the, <laughs> the new leader of the Chechens were like, yeah, these guys are cannon fodder. You know, they're not trained. They don't know how to do anything. Mm -hmm. Let's just leave them there. So they're all sitting around, and that's when one of the another guy, the Jordanian guy, goes, um, a guy named Abu Atiyah, he, his name came out. Um, president knew him by name because he was missing part of his leg. And uh, so there's always the reports about the kind of the one-legged guy that was sure. there. Um, he kind of had the idea of like, hey, why don't we send these guys back to Europe? You know, they got documents, let's send them back. And that was, it was interesting because the administration was going, well, how are these guys tied into Al-Qaeda? Because that's, that's what their focus was on. And they're sure. like, and, and you know, who's the commander? Who's the second in command? Who's the, and we're like, these are just guys. <laughs> you know, I actually, kind of, I drew out a graphic. I think they used it in the Secretary Powell speech before the UN. And I kind of just had overlapping circles of networks because that's really what this was. You had the guys that were supporting Chechnya over here. One of those guys happened to be Jordanian. So he knew these other guys that were in Iraq or in Iran and in Jordan. That that became Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and his guys. Mm. And then they knew these guys that were sitting in the Kurdish part of Iraq. So that's how they were talking. And then these North Africans just happened to come into the circle. They go back. And so they're there interacting in their established European networks. And so it was really just really informal. Hey, we're all same ideology. You know, that's what changed in the prior to 9-11, all of these groups were just focused on, hey, I want to overthrow the French government. I want to overthrow the French government, you know, che Chechens fight, fight Russians. And, and then it became, no, the US, bin Laden's right, head of the snake, let's hit them or any way we can. And uh, so that's, that's it. so that's why these guys were like, well, who are all these people? But if you'd ask like the Europe, and, and that was really, it was a really cool thing. And it was actually kind of fortunate that I was sitting in the WMD cell because I didn't have a regional responsibility there other than sort of, you know, did. But I would go to my friend who was following European networks and she's like, oh, I know all these guys. Yeah, these guys have been around for a while. And she's like, okay, well, it's new to me. So educate me on this. And then I go over the Jordanian guys. And they're like, oh, we know these guys. They've been around for a while. And I was like, oh, well, now they're interacting here. And we actually put together this huge link chart. Um, it's not quite the craziness that you see, like, you know, a beautiful mind or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, we, and we, it was huge. I mean, it was like, it covered the whole wall of like our, our wall. Uh, and we joked that if given more time, we could have probably mapped out the entire Mujahideen network in the, in the world. But it was really just, we had these, these circles and, you know, kind of hub and spoke. And then how they connected to each other. And that was really, I, that's kind of one of the things analytically I'm, I'm most proud of is I kind of was at the forefront of just showing post 9-11, that's how all these guys are interacting right now. It's because it's not bin Laden directing attacks or anybody really. It, they're, you know, they, these are just guys that are inspired. They're, they're in a network and they're looking for opportunities. And they, I got, a guy goes, hey, I know a guy, go talk to him. And then I know a guy, go talk to him. And then that's how operations got working. Network versus us. Yeah. I was going to say it's violence, right? Like, because let's think about CTC, you're talking pre 9-11. Can you kind of elaborate the distinction? Because what you're describing to me is non-government actors back to, mm -hmm. and especially 
because this is a tricky one because there is an argument for organizations like Hamas, Hezbollah, to have some sort of government PLO. They have Taliban. There's a government function. You know, violence is, and militancy is a part of this structure, but there's a governmental organization, civic sort of structure, I feel like, behind those, which to me seems like what you were, CIA and everyone in the world was structured around fighting when it comes to terrorism. But now you're describing all these sort of bandits that are out there. Yeah, that's that's great way to put it. And and yeah, and that was the traditional mindset was because we were always looking, well, who's the state sponsor? Well, there weren't, you know, that was the traditional one. You named all the traditional groups, Samas, Hezbollah, PLO. They had state sponsorship. Um, there was no it, there was no direct state sponsorship of these guys. Now, could some of the countries that these guys were coming from do more to crack down on what was happening? Yes. And, mm -hmm. and they didn't always do that. But they allowed radical imams to recruit these guys, you know, so you, the average, the average Muj, as we called them, Mujahideen, um, was some poor teenager, early 20s, you know, in, in one of these, uh, you know, countries in the Middle East that had a, a secular regime, oppressive regime, um, would, didn't have much of a future, uh, would go to a mosque, hear some imam going, hey, we're offering you greater things if you join and go where we want you to go. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, go on jihad. Um, you know, and I always try to clarify, because my, my, the best man at my wedding was a guy named Jihad. <laughs> um, he was a, my roommate in college. And his dad had escaped Iraq. Uh, wow. And yeah, his, wow. Yeah, his dad was, his, I, I grew up in Los Angeles and went to school in, in San Diego. And yeah, so this guy, he had, uh, he's a Shia that, from uh, Karbala and his family, his dad was a doctor and mm -hmm. Saddam was going after all the doctors. He got out. And so Jihad was actually born in the U.S. He was as American as you. He was born in New Jersey <laughs> and I loved yeah. hockey. <laughs> you know? um, but he, uh, you know, so I, the first day I go and I see his name on the room with me. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I getting into? And it was like the nicest guy ever, except when he was playing hockey, then he was a total goon. But, um, and he was, I was like, Jihad, how'd you get Jihad? And he's like, well, Jihad's not just worker. That's one element of it. It's, it's striving for God is, is mm. what it is in, in Islam. Um, but the, the mil these guys were playing on the militant aspect of that. And, and right. it's true, you know, that if you do die while engaged in jihad, you know, it's straight to paradise. And, and you know, it, that, so that was all part of the, uh, the ethos that these guys had. And that's what led them to get recruited. Now, uneducated, untrained. Um, my, one of my branch chiefs always used to say, thank God for dumb terrorists, because they were pretty stupid. <laughs> And Make mistakes, yeah. It made tons of mistakes because uh, people, you know, eventually, our uh, the the weapons of mass destruction group kind of lost some of its luster because people are going, they've never conducted anything like that, and we're like, well, maybe that's because we took them all off the streets <laughs> um, because they would be sloppy and we would find them, um, and so that you know that that was really kind of the, the point but that's why my boss was saying thank god for dumb terrorists because if you had somebody that was smart who actually you know wasn't trying to do anarchist cookbook kind of stuff you know hooked up with an actual scientist hooked up with an actual state program which we never saw uh you know that would be more sophisticated than um they could have done that and that was always, that was the constant struggle because 
uh, we had the guys who followed state uh, wet WMD programs, we would consult with them when we'd find something like a recipe or something like that. And they go, this is so crude. And we're like, yeah, from a state program it is, but can this stuff work? And they'd have to look at it and go, well, maybe. We're like, well, that's all we need to know. <laughs> you know, is maybe. Still the 1% rule, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and there was some stuff that we eventually found that was, you know, looked like a guy knew kind of what he was doing and it was simplistic in, in nature that, you know, it wouldn't have been a mass casualty threat, but they, they knew what to do with it too, which was kind of the thing, which, you know, a lot of guys were like, well, let's just, uh, one of the things towards the end of my time in, in WD or PTCW, we were looking at all those chlorine canisters that they were blowing up in Iraq. I don't know if you guys remember that. They would get yeah. like, chlorine trucks and blow them up. And they, but they're doing it outside, right? The chlorine would just go, you know, and disperse, and that was it. You had a greater threat of getting killed by the shrapnel coming off the truck than the chlorine gas. But they were like, let's just do something different and blow this stuff up, right? But it just shows the fundamental lack of you know, chemistry and physics. <laughs> um, you know, so when we found somebody who was like, no, 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 don't use this stuff outside. Use this stuff inside. We'd be like, oh, okay, that's somebody that we should probably keep an eye on. Was the, I have in my mind that there was some debate within Al-Qaeda, um, which I guess makes it challenging because there was such a disparate network. Um, but WMD weren't, if I'm not mistaken, it was not a shoe-in that if Al-Qaeda got them, they would use them. Wasn't there a little debate as to essentially the morality of even using those weapons? It, I mean, it's, they saw what, what we did to them after they you know, took down buildings. So it would be like, there was a debate, like if we did something even more, you know, what, what the blowback would be against us. I, I think that if they, I don't think they ever got anything. I mean, I think if they had, they, they would have considered using it. The big, the big, and this was the debate that, that broke out in 9-11, particularly after the Iraq war started. And Zarqawi and what became ISIS, um, was had the headlines and was doing most of the damage in the war. Um, big Al Qaeda was sort of hamstrung by the fact that they their leaders they're like we're not going to do anything unless it's the equivalent or better than 9/11. And of course they were really lucky actually 9/11. They didn't think those buildings were going to come down. Um, mm. They just were going to fly planes into them. Uh, so they actually it was actually bigger than they thought it would be. And then they were like, well, dang, we got to do something like that again. Well, of course, by then, you know, hard target, it's a much harder target. We're, we're on them, we're, we're alert, we're aware. And that's one of the reasons I think they never really were able to do anything after 9-11. Now, Zarqawi, he's like, dude, let's do whatever we can. <laughs> you know, what, whatever, whatever works, little uh, car bombs, beheadings, you know, WMD, if we, if we can get it, what whatever you whatever keeps you know, striking terror in the hearts of these guys and then and then that was the big debate because then the other thing that Zarqawi did was he started killing Shia in Iraq and that was that would kind of threw us for a loop too when they when he first started doing it because it's like okay he blows up the Jordanian embassy so we'll let me step back for a second so that, that network that I'm following of all those guys they they're mainly those Jordanian guys were friends of this guy you know Ahmed Fadl Al-Khalila, also known as Abu, Abu um, uh, Zarqawi. Um, sure. So um, the, these guys, uh, Zarqawi was, actually was kind of in the Kermal area, uh, northern Iraq, had gone into Iraq proper prior to our invasion, saw that we were going to invade, 
and started um, getting networks set up prior to our invasion. And it's really ironic because, you know, we want to go down this about the intelligence leading into the Iraq war. The administration was hell bent on going into Iraq. Um, I, the reasons can be speculated. They, they kept, I, even after, you, you probably heard after 9-11, the first thing they did was, okay, it was Iraq and was Saddam behind us. I've heard that rumor. Yeah, that conversation. That, that actually was true. And they pressed us the entire time to find an Iraq connection to 9-11. They but even the initial up, answer, though, was? No, 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 no connection. And the final answer was no, because we set up a whole committee to review all of the intelligence prior to 9-11 to find Iraq ties. Again, another kind of waste of time is a huge effort. Um, and the, the, the conclusion was no. Um, the, in fact, you know, it, it makes sense now. Secular regime, you know, Sunni, uh, ethnic, in, you know, in, in the ethnic sense, not really religious, but Sunnis are the minority in Iraq. You know, the British are really doing blame for all these problems because you know they created Iraq. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. we'll leave it there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they they intentionally put Kurds and Sunnis and Shia all together so that no one would have power. But Saddam comes in from the Sunni clan, minority group, oppresses everybody else, oppresses any threat to his regime, and ironically, probably would have gotten around to going after Zarqawi himself had we not been threatening to invade uh, and said, well, you know, we might as well let these guys go because maybe they'll fight, you know, against the Americans too while, while we're there. Um, but they're trying to make this case that the, the regime is supporting terrorism. Well, they latch on to those guys in Kermal and I keep telling them, guys, it's, there's no state control there. It's above the no-fly zone. They, they, they can't go there. Well, you know, so Secretary Powell actually says, I want to highlight this in my speech before the UN. So we write out the, the truth. Here's the, here are the ties. And the, one of these guys is, is in Northern Iraq. So I wrote a lot of that, that section of that speech. Um, and then, you know, put it out there. The rest of us, we're going, why are we doing this? Uh, we don't really see anything there. Now, maybe, okay, maybe those weapons mass destruction that the regime has, okay, maybe that's legit that we should go in there. But from a terrorism standpoint, we're not seeing it. I think this, the, the counterterrorism center as a whole was geared up after Afghanistan to go into Yemen. Or that, that was kind of where we were gonna go next. Okay, yeah. there, were, there were some connections there. Always, yep. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's, that was kind of, when we were thinking beyond Afghanistan, we were thinking that. And Yemen being like an Afghanistan 2.0, meaning it's a kind of, um, well, an area that can facilitate these anarchists versus the government actor thing going on exactly that, right? we we said the um the president of the president of yemen was the president of yemen by day and the mayor of Sanaa by night because <laughs> uh, he didn't have control over the, the country. yeah exactly yeah, okay. and it, you know that's all playing out now as well but uh that was kind of what we were looking at but so iraq was we we're like what a, this is a complete diversion so we ended up you know so zarqawi anticipated all of this and uh, mm. and then so we get in, of course, we go straight to Baghdad. He's all in the Fallujah, you know, Al-Ambar area, the traditional Sunni hub out there. We don't go clear all that out. We're like, we're going after the regime. So we go straight to Baghdad. That's how we're able to win so quickly, obviously, against the Iraqi regime. But all these other guys are, you know, are there. Now you've got even some regime guys, even though they're uh, secular, 
they're like, hey, we'll join anybody who's going to go fight the Americans. And because he had pre-positioned that, we actually found copies of Secretary Powell's speech in some of the areas, like the known safe houses that we, we raided. Or like, oh, they really? Knew, they knew we were coming when we told them we were coming. You know, so um, sure, sure. They, they were set up. And so they started hitting sooner than anybody else. So Jordanian embassy, um, they blew up. UN uh, headquarters there, they hit car bomb. Um, you know, so we start seeing this and we're going, okay, you know, that, that makes sense that these guys are doing that, but then they're hitting Shia targets and we're like, what's this? That's, that's not Western. Why are they doing that? And it took us a while that we're like, is that even Zarqawi's group? Um, but then we started to find out, figure out, well, he, first of all, he hated Shia because he saw them as apostates. They were even worse than infidels because they had heard the word of Islam and gotten it wrong. Zarqawi. Um, Zarqawi thought that about the, the Shia. And so he hated them. And then second, he saw, well, his vision was, I'm going to foment a civil war between the Sunnis and the Shia in Iraq. And that's going to, and out of that chaos, you know, inshallah, uh, we will emerge victorious. And that they have given us a gift because then we will be able to reestablish the caliphate in the land of the two rivers. That's what his mm -hmm. group was originally called Al Qaeda in the land of the two rivers. Um, and oh. that would be in the heart of what was the caliphate. And from there, we will reestablish the caliphacy. Uh, like Afghanistan, that's way over here. No one cares about that. Right. We have an opportunity here to do that. And that was what he was trying to, that's why he was striking these, these Shia targets was he was trying to get them to then retaliate and that would mobilize the Sunnis and then, and somehow they would come, come out of this victorious. And of course we would withdraw and be defeated. Now this is in that 0405 timeframe. So I watched party invasion from a hotel room at West Point. I was touring West Point and we had the TV on. I go, Oh my God, there's tanks rolling in um, March of 03, um, March, April. But I remember Sarah and I've talked about this a few times. I don't know if it was months, but it was a long time of me thinking they didn't get those WMDs in week one, but just give it time. And it was just give it time, just give it time. And then all of a sudden we were fighting this insurgency um, against our Cali. So there's this, when did you kind of recognize? So from the casual observer, I don't know, maybe a little more than casual. I kept waiting for them to pop up. And then all of a sudden we're, fighting a different war. Was there a transition period there for you? Oh yeah, it took, uh, it took a while, both for the administration and for even the counterterrorism center to acknowledge that this was, this was the thing because the administration of course was calling all these guys like dead enders and you know, that they're not really serious. They're not, they don't represent the regime the loyalists even, right? Yeah. Yeah. One. Yeah. Former regime loyalists. They, um, so they'd be saying that. And then of course, then they're digging up all of these like old mortar rounds from the, the Iran Iraq war and going here it is and we're like no it's severely degraded it's been buried for yeah. decades um you know and that's a whole different that could be a whole different podcast about the intelligence there uh like that that led you know that we had about their their program my, one of my rest one of my best friends she was the lead uh, bio analyst for Iraq and we actually teach this as a case study because it's about um you know Put it kind of uh, placing your own Western mind on a different target, which is something we're always trying to watch out for. And so she gives the example. She's like, okay, 
we see there's a bunker. It's got you know controlled perimeter, guards going in and out, convoys going in and out, um, highly secure, protected. And we're like, hmm, so what are we thinking? There's weapons of mass destruction there. Um, get some human that suggests the same thing. We roll in there, kick the door down. There's food. They were storing food there. Mm. And food is currency in that in Iraq at that time. And that's so Western mindset, bunker, weapons stored there. Middle Eastern mindset, you know, regimes controlling the food. And so you can see how we kind of let got led down that that line. Where does um, but Saddam was always um denying the inspections and all that stuff. And yeah, so like, which, where does that it, sort of fit in? So you put all that into he's hiding stuff, he's hiding stuff. You know, he was just messing with us. <laughs> you know? yeah. Now, yeah, now I'm I'm sure. in, I just saw that they think that, you know, the Iraq war syndrome that a lot of people are, have experienced, unfortunately, out of our soldiers, maybe sarin related. I just saw a press report about that. Don't know, you know, there, I think there's still, that was, that's the speculation is a lot of these guys, you know, cause we blew up a lot of these places and then sent infantry in after it, that, that these guys might've been exposed to a lot of, uh, so that raises the question, well, what was that, what, you know, now, I don't have any access to any of that intel anymore, but, uh, you know, I was like, that, that would be interesting to kind of go back and, and take a look at that. But yeah, so the administration's still like holding up, hey, we're finding this. Well, that's not really that big a deal, you know, and oh, these these, these attacks that are happening, these not really dead end, they'll, they'll go away. This will all go away. And even CTC was thinking that, like, I'm still sitting from, so we invade in March of 03. Uh, all the way into the summer of 04, I'm still sitting in the weapons of mass destruction department, uh, but I'm not doing weapons of mass destruction anymore. I'm doing the Iraq war. Uh, mm. and, and mainly because I had not only did Rolf Larson, the, the group chief, but then like my, uh, my own team chief, uh, both were, were pretty open-minded about this. They're like, no one else is doing this. This is important. You, you keep doing it. And in fact, we'll kind of empower you. I was a GS-13 at the time, um, which is just kind of like main level analyst. Uh, usually if you got, you became a, a supervisor, you got a 14 at that point. Um, they're like, We're, you go ahead and build like this. We actually built what we call a virtual network um, of just everybody who was related to this. So the European guys that I talked about, you know, the Iraq guys, Iran guys, you know, Jordanian guys, all the analysts that had anything to do with this, you know, and there was a small Iraq team that had been put in place, but actually half that team was doing all of the looking into the, the pre 9-11 reports about trying to find ties to the regime. So there really only half those guys would, yeah, still. So only half those guys were really looking at the war itself. So we just kind of informally, this, you know, true believers, they're like, hey, we need to keep following this. And it wasn't until really summer of 04 that even CTC, because CTC was like, well, we're still going after it. We're still trying to find Osama bin Laden. We're still going that way. Mm -hmm. um, that they finally go, well, okay, maybe we need to plus up the Iraq shop. And so they moved me out of WMD at that point to go to an Iraq, a Zarqawi team within a larger Iraq group as the senior analyst there. And uh, so I ended up doing that through, uh, it was again, March of like 06. Um, and, and during that time, that's when the administration finally started to go, all right, this is a little bit more serious than we thought. And that's when you saw the surge 
occur and the Battle of Fallujah and the sweep. And because we were that's what we were always telling them was like, you really this this is not going to go away until you deny those safe areas, mainly El Anwar province from Zarqawi. Because um, we also were getting reporting that you know, Iraqis are generally a secular people. Um, the real true believers were the guys coming in from out of the country. Sure. Right. But the Iraqis at the same time were kind of like, well, you're the only show in town, so we'll we'll fight with you. But at the same time, they're like, you guys are nuts. <laughs> you know, all this. And Zarqawi was like, no, Sharia law in our areas. And they're like, we don't like this Sharia law stuff. This is terrible. So once we came in there, all the tribal leaders were like, yeah, get these guys out of here. Um, that's and as long as you give us protection. And bar and, awakening, right? That's that period of time. Yep. And that's that's what we did. And CIA was kind of at the forefront of doing that, too. We were kind of doing the guys that were negotiating with all of these leaders as the military was coming in. And we completely secured, you know, our province and attacks went went down. Um, and then we gave it away again and then attacks went back up. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was it, but then we went back and with the now trained Iraqis took it, took it back over. And that's why you don't hear about Iraq anymore. But um, it's because we denied those areas. That's that's really the key to fighting. It, it's counterinsurgency. It, it's basic counterinsurgency. It's it's deny safe haven. With so um, Zarqawi was around pre 9-11, still doing his thing. Not sounds like to me, not tied to bin Laden of any sort, but still very, I mean, had that hate in his heart about against Shias and the caliphate and everything. And um, is there a argument or a thought that this was a sort of, um, it was bound to happen no matter what with the period of the time where um, it was, it seems like a hornet's nest and maybe the, the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time, maybe for the Iraq war to all this to sort of have a pressure valve go off. Is there, was this inevitable or like, what's your thought on that with a guy like Zarqawi who was already training um, for this sort of stuff? I think we handed him a golden opportunity. Um, so he, he came to prominence. He was out of Zarqa, Jordan, that's Al Zarqawi. Um, he fought in the original, against the Soviets in Afghanistan. Uh, that's that. where he became radicalized. Uh, had actually had, um, you know, like, like one of the camps in Herat was kind of, he had folks going through there. He, he had gone through there in Afghanistan prior to 9-11. Looking for opportunities, you know, um, was kind of, like I said, floating around the Middle East, uh, you know, had been Kermal, into Iran. Um, and then, and the Iranian government was interesting because they would like, they sort of let these guys go sometimes and then they crack down on them and then they, you know then they were sort of just under house arrest and they, so they can still communicate but they couldn't go anywhere it was a kind of interesting the iranians were I feel always like they of, would like, hate him too right the yeah they well eventually eventually yeah it was like no you know when he started killing shia because they see yeah. themselves as the defenders of shia islam yeah. and that was actually our worst case scenario our we've thought this through worst case scenario is iran comes in to protect the shia you know in a failed you know, US, U.S. fails to control all this. Iran comes in to protect the Shia. The Saudis, who see themselves as the protectors of Sunni Islam, come in to back the Sunnis. Meanwhile, you got the Kurds floating around the north who the Turks hate and are afraid of. So the Turks come rolling in, and now you got a you know a global conflict, <laughs> you know, brewing hey, there. Yeah, that was always kind of our our worst fear that we were warning about. Like we got to tread lightly here. Um, but I think we did give. I mean, Zarqawi was looking for that opportunity and then he saw it. 
So you're right. Maybe if it wasn't there, maybe it would have been Yemen or maybe you know wherever else we we went. But he saw this as an opportunity, and it, it was like I said, right in the middle of the traditional caliphate. You know that that was a golden opportunity for for him at that point. And he took advantage of it, and it was actually an interesting dynamic because at one point he swore bayat to Bin Laden, but that was almost kind of notional, and we could see tensions between. Because Zarqawi is basically saying, look, Al-Qaeda, you guys ain't doing anything. <laughs> you know, you're hiding, right. you're hiding out, literally. And I'm fighting the war here. And, you know, give me money was kind of what he was looking for. Um, but I'm the man, you know, I'm not because actually big Al-Qaeda was a little uh, uneasy with his attacking of the Shia. They were hmm. they, they didn't think that that was um you know that that had a potential to split islam and so they were kind of saying hey tone that down and, and he's like no um, this is a central tenant of my of my plan plus it, they're they're apostates <laughs> he, <laughs> he had yeah. he had some i think i was looking for a book back there but this black flags yes that time period right the hunt for zarqawi but he had some leverage because he was kind of the face. He did. He, right? he was the face. Yeah. It, I mean, post 9-11, you know, there was nothing else from a terrorism standpoint. That was it. That was what was going on. Um, you know, and that was the other thing. The military was really, they were, they, it took them a while to get around this concept of there isn't a, a hierarchy among, even, even in Iraq. I was talking about these international connections. But even in Iraq, Zarqawi was a very loose commander. I mean, he just sort of set up guys in areas and said, do your thing. Um, and that's what made him so hard to find, too, and, and to capture, because he just was elusive um, and would move from place but, and just empower his guys in the region to, to, to do things. And so the military, we, we joked about this, because the military was always claiming that they just killed or captured the number two guy in Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And we'd go, we haven't even heard of this guy. What are you talking about? And then we joked, they were like, just bringing out the same dead body every time. <laughs> you know, like, hey, look, we got the number two guy. We got the number two guy. Or like, there's yeah. no number two. There's this, there's, you know, kind of Zarqawi's just kind of empowering and leading and organizing. And then you're taking out cell leaders. Um, you're taking out spiritual directors. That, that was a thing. Um, and that's how we actually finally got him. But uh that he's he's loose it's loose it's you it's it's organic it, that was what made it so hard to fight and from a targeting standpoint that was it's like well who should we go get and it was and you guys have probably read about him or are even familiar about it, you know the the targeting ops that the especially like our special operations guys did it was kick down a door grab a bunch of guys bring them back do a quick interrogation get a lead on where somebody else is go kick down that door and just keep it rolling. Um, I think McChrystal wrote a book about that where it was just, it was crazy, just nonstop. Yeah. 20 years. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it was 20 years in reality. I mean, I wonder about those guys, um, those direct action guys, the SEALs and like the Rangers in particular that for, they spent 20 year career just going in these nightly raids, killing and capturing people, never living with the people either, right? They're not really doing the uh, coin or hearts and minds or any population engagement stuff at all. This is just straight assassin for all these sort of number two people in the head of certain units, but none of us can think of any of these names right now. And, but they just, I don't, 
their whole career was sort of doing that at nighttime, just straight killing people over these sort of intelligence, um, the things that they're feeding. And it almost seems like a cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Like you kill people, you get more intelligence so that you can go kill them the next night. Yep. And it's just exactly. rinse and repeat. Yep. hundred percent. That was the, from really from Oh five. Well, late 04 into 06, that's pretty much what we did. Um, that, that was how we fought them. And then, and then the surge happened. And then they finally said, no, let's go big army and let's go and Marines and let's go. Because mm -hmm. because you're right, it wasn't really effective. Other guys just popped up after them, you know? Whack-a-mole, so, yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're not really getting the net. Even after we killed Zarqawi, it, it, they kept going. You know, somebody right. else just stepped up. Now, he was kind of the glue. I mean, I have a, he was like my number one nemesis in life, right? I have a you know, begrudging admiration for the guy. Um, but uh, I was really happy when we got him, <laughs> you know, so, but that's actually, I'll, I'll tell that story because that's like my favorite story to tell. So um, I had actually gone, gotten off the Iraq team. I became a manager, um, got promoted to 14, got, became a manager back in the weapons of mass destruction group where I'm still doing Iraq related stuff. It's these chlorine canisters and all the stuff that we're, we were still following, um, you know, still kind of helping the other guys and because we've gotten kind of tied in with the ops guys and the ops guys in the WMD group are like, we really don't know what to do. And I was like, well, here, let me kind of help. And you know, so we were, we were doing some stuff there. Um, but shortly after I had transitioned over, uh, we killed Zarkawi. So the, we'd always had this story. So we had a, we had a guy on our team. We called him the slightly autistic target because he, he, this guy was brilliant, like could knew names and dates and number, like, but it was a little off, you know, and I think he was probably on the spectrum. We didn't say that back then. He didn't know what that meant back then, but he and another one of my buddies, they were in, in Baghdad together right after we had just started up the station. They're doing analytical support to operations there. And the, the guy who was the slightly autistic targeter, um, he was about to go on R&R, going to go on leave. And so he pulled my other friend into the station at the kitchen and said, hey, man, I'm going on leave, but I think we're close. I feel it. We're like really close to getting Zarqawi. So if we get him, I want you to call me and say the Eagle has new shoes. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> and my buddy's like, what are you talking about, man? And he's like, no, 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 seriously. I want you to call me and say the Eagle has new shoes. So that was our joke, right? That, that if we ever called him or, or killed him or captured him, yeah, and I, that we found out that was the problem with the, the phrase. <laughs> Didn't distinguish between the two. Oh, sure. Yeah, that we would call, we call each other and say that. So I'm sitting at home after work one evening, and one of my buddies who's still back on the Iraq team calls me, and he's like, hey, Jim, uh, I just wanted to let you know we went shopping today, and the Eagle has new shoes. And I was like, it took me a minute. I was like, what? <laughs> and, and he's like, yeah, yeah, a bunch of the guys from the team are coming in. You know, we're doing some of the – exfil and stuff you know um do you want to come in to to help i was like well you guys got this i'm on this other team now you know i'm the manager i kind of have to do that but thanks for letting me know i pre i really appreciate it it's like yeah sure no problem man so he hangs up and i go okay wait a minute did we kill him or did we capture him because the right didn't distinguish well then another one of my friends calls me and she and i had been, she was actually the other senior analyst on the iraq team we had been doing this sort of in parallel forever and she has this great i think it's tennessee accent and she goes, Jim, we went shopping and the Eagle has new shoes. <laughs> and I was like, everybody yes. wanted to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So my, my, I was like, yeah, my, my buddy just called you know, and, said, and said that. I was like, 
but is the eagle still with us? <laughs> and she goes, no, he's not. And it's definitely him. I saw the photos. <laughs> it's becoming less and less encrypted, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we just kind of took a minute because, you know, we've been doing this for four years, you know, basically uh-huh. going after this guy and, you know, we just sort of appreciate it. So then, you know, I think Google or whatever search engine would, had just been invented, you know, in 06 or whenever. And so I did a quick search to see, like, has this been made public yet? And it hadn't. So I couldn't even, like, tell my wife or anything. Uh, so I went to bed, got up the next morning, looked and saw overnight the, um, the, the U.S. guys in, in Iraq announced it. So I kind of shook my wife awake and said, hey, hey, we killed Zarqawi. She's like, yeah, that's great, honey. <laughs> you know, so um, I went to work, still feeling good, like logged into my computer and then off immediately like instant messages from everybody that I'd ever worked with on the target is just pinging, oh, we got him, we got him, we finally got him. And, and one of the ops guys that I worked most closely with uh, back pre-OIF invasion, um, you know, I'd been, we had been together in WMD and then I had left and now I came back and he came to my office. We just gave him a big bear hug. <laughs> you know, it's like, we finally got this guy. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, that was just so, it was that, I always say that's the highlight of my career just because, you know, not, not to celebrate the death of a human being, but, you know, we had spent so much time and that guy had been one step ahead of us so many times. And it actually, we, we, we sort of got lucky. Um, it was the, the targeting effort of part of these raids. And we got word that there was some sort of Shura council meeting potentially happening. And we saw all these guys pull up to the meeting. So we had an F-18 put a couple 500 pound bombs on target and then had a QRF roll up. And the last thing he saw was the QRF guys coming up on him as he died from the, the wounds he sustained in the attack. Um, you know, that that's, but we didn't know for sure that he was going to be there. We didn't know that he was there until very, very much like the bin Laden raided to that extent. But although that was more sophisticated, obviously, from an intelligence standpoint. I mean, um, I think that's that's one of the big names to me, at least. Sayer and I were talking about this. We had a text chain going this morning on this topic. But I mean, it's it's in order Saddam, um, Zarqawi, bin Laden, and then depending on how many people are still paying attention, Baghdadi a few years ago. Right. Um, so, yeah, Zarqawi. I mean, but but Saddam was oh. Oh, we got him first. Yeah, we got him first. But it was three or four years before the next big, big notable target. And then another four years before Bin Laden. Right, right. My comment on that, though, is, yeah, we the guy we got first isn't related to any of the others. No, no, there were, I mean, some tangent, you know, they you did swear by out to bin laden but you know that it was just informal communications we don't think they ever met or anything is our no i mean Saddam. yeah i mean Saddam. back to your thing saying they're pressuring they want they wanted saddam right and they got saddam first but you know that is my comment is the other three though that took years and years later were the bad guys essentially that we were trying to get and Saddam wasn't even a party to the group, essentially. Well, I still got, I still have my Saddam cards, you know, that they like, hand yeah. out. Yeah. You know, yeah. But that was first. These are all regime guys, you know, so that was what they were after first. And then later we got, we stole the idea and then we put our little Zarqawi matchbooks. Oh, smart. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. He looks different in those. Are those supposed yep, to be him on the back there? That's him. Yeah. Those are all him. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I've got the black. YouTube, right? Because this was when YouTube was first starting, and we oh, know yeah. how ISIS evolved with it. But like, 
This was the very beginnings. Um, I remember oh, yeah. the Nick Berg beheading. I was so in senior was, year of yeah, high no, school. We were just getting ready to graduate. Oh, um, that was that was another interesting dynamic because they used what we called open source, you know, better than anybody else. They were they were all these the communications, the beheading videos, everything. He was a real messenger, you know, you getting spreading the word. And that was a different dynamic as well, because our open source information was almost better than our, our uh, clandestine information. Mm -hmm. And in, you know, there's sort of, I, I teach this too. So when I, when I talk about analysis, you know, sometimes you put a little bit more weight on it because it's secret, but the open source stuff was even better. Um, our open source center rep that we had working with us, she was a key part of the team. She'd get, you know, these videos before, you know, as soon as they were posted, and would get it to us for us to, to analyze. And, and actually, when Cybercom was stepped up, it was stood up first off. We had they they of course they're looking for something to do. We're like, we can shut down all these sites. We're like, no, <laughs> you know, this is this is how we're getting our information. You let them go. Yeah. <laughs> so good point. Uh, yeah. yeah. That, no, that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, and that was what Zarkali was doing. He was always trying to one up himself in that regard too, because what's the next scariest thing? So it went from suicide bombings to car bombings to coordinated car bombs, simultaneous car bombs all, all over the country to beheadings, as you said. Um, that was one of my jobs was to watch those things and try to, to analyze them and see you know, who's doing it and where are they and, and, and what's, you know, and watch those things, you know, trying not to focus on what's actually happening, but you know, the area around them um that's kind of what you described with bin laden and al-qaeda central right where they they were trying to one-up themselves so their playing field got a little bit bigger um zarqawi was just starting lower he was starting local um so just constantly trying to up that game i guess and that was that was my biggest fear was because i had seen him be thinking about uh, european attacks um prior to oif and and they seemed to still be looking outside of Iraq. Um, of course, he was doing attacks in Jordan, um, his home country. Um, you know, so we were, we were waiting for, and I don't know if, if he had lived, if, if they would have done more out of area operations to include potentially you know, the US. Um, because like I said, and that's why we were looking at it from a WMP standpoint too, what's the next biggest thing that can get those headlines and can you know, shock people because um, they all believe, you know, like everybody believes, Americans are weak. You, you hit them hard enough, they're going to go home. And you know that, that that was a big part of his his strategy. Do you think that um, there's any that he had a target rich environment in Iraq that prevented him from going global? Like he could kill dozens of Americans oh, yeah. Um, locally. Yeah, I mean, he, he like, target opportunity. You know, he, he, that, and I got you got to hand it to the guy because that. That's what hamstrung big Al Qaeda and other groups. You know, dude, take take what's in front of us. Just go ahead and do it. Um, I mean, that's why I, I was always concerned that, you know, now we've got Americans doing it, but you know, take a gun and walk into a mall. You know, but, you know that imagine the headlines and, and now we're seeing it. But um, you know, just that's what he did. Targets of opportunity. Targets of opportunity. Just start that civil war in Iraq. And Allah will lead us through that to victory. Um, that was his strategy. So that, and, then, and that's what he kept, kept doing. And that, that's why, yeah, when we, when we killed him, you know, and they go back to my story of the day we did. So, uh, you know, I thought my wife had not really paid attention to the fact that, you know, we killed him. When I came home, 
my kids had put in sidewalk chalk all over the driveway, RIP Zarkawi, <laughs> you know, good riddance, all this stuff. So I was like, if my neighbors didn't know what I did, they, they did at that point. They do now. And we sort of had a little party that night. And in fact, they asked me that question. Like, Dad, what's the next terrorist who's going to get killed that we're going to have another party? <laughs> and I said, I said Bin Laden. I said Bin Laden. Yeah, we did have years. a few years for that. So, um, yeah. but yeah. It's uh, you, American yeah. Sniper. I mean, for anyone, I guess, listening, that would be the Zarqawi stuff, that just psychopath, cre- almost like creative killing, too, is what he was doing. I mean, just a straight psychopath. Uh, yeah. yeah. In definitely. ways that I feel like... I, don't know any of these people obviously like just different than bin laden who might have had different than saddam who was a narcissist tyrant you know they're all doing killing people too right but he just seemed like a different level of psychopath yeah it, 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 that's a good way to put i mean all for an or it was a means to an end you know that whatever they could do he could do to foment that unrest uh, to get the U.S. to withdraw and to have the whole region sink into chaos, that was going. Yeah, so he killed Kurds, he killed Shia, uh, killed Americans, killed Europeans, killed Jordanians. You know what? You know, beheaded truck drivers. You know, just killed Iraqis. They 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 didn't like him at all. Um, you know, they were like I said, they were happy when we finally came in and cleared out the area. Uh, yeah, just but just a killing for a means. It's it's pure terrorism um that being that terrorism as a tool like i said i didn't like the global war on terror moniker we just never wanted to call it what it was which was uh it was you you call it technically it was a law it was a war against salafism you know radical sunni islam um and that's what we were fighting this in this in, and we could we should have couched it that way it's like we're in, but you know like i said i have plenty of muslim friends <laughs> my best one my best man at my wedding but you know we're not that's not who we're fighting those guys don't like it either they hate it you know they hate it we're we're because they're bastardizing islam it's these are guys that are it's really I, we, one of our senior analysts in, in cia brilliant thinker she she wrote a piece that basically said this is our really what these guys are doing is anti-colonialism it's they're targeting oh. the secular regimes that they believe had been set up by the Americans and supported by the Americans that were oppressing them in their areas. And that the only way to overthrow that is to subscribe to this really, you know, restrictive vision of sixth century Islam, which is a bastardized interpretation of how things were in sixth century Islam or seventh century Islam. And then, um, and, and be radical fundamental adherence to it. And that that's, that's what Allah wants, and then that's what will gain you victory. Um, and that should have been the counter messaging that, you know, that's, that's, and it, it was to a large extent, you know, that these guys are, they're, they're, this is not Islam. We're not fighting Islam. We're fighting this bastardized version of sure. Islam that they're using to try to, for political means, really, um, to try to overthrow their, the secular governments. But I can also see where that becomes a very delicate line to walk, and it, somebody could easily twist it. Um, yeah, well, we, you, you know, a lot of people went over the end, you know, you kill all the Muslims kind of thing, you know, then, yeah, that's not what we want, obviously, it, it's ridiculous, but we, it, that's, that's what this was, it was the, it was going after Salafism, and, and the, the Salafist view of Islam, and trying to combat that, and that's what we were doing. Is there, 
we're going long here, which is awesome because it's hard to stop talking, but is there anything we didn't hit on that we should have? I think, um, I think the big lesson learned, you know, especially if we look back, Mike probably talked to it. He, he took, you know, the withdrawal, the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan pretty hard, you know, cause it was like, what did we, what were we doing for the last 20 years? I, I felt that way in what was it? 2011 when, <laughs> It's a common theme. Vice President Biden was responsible for getting us out of Iraq and pretty much did the same thing where they just pulled everybody out and then Salafists just walked back into Al-Ambar and then took a change of administration for us to go back in and, and, and sweep that out again. Um, this, is, this is insurgency. You're fighting counterinsurgency tactics and control of denying safe havens is a key. Uh, that's, that's how they fester. That's how they, they breed because Otherwise, you know, they're, these guys are, are, are poor, unintelligent, or, you know, un, uneducated guys that are just getting radicalized. And, you know, but if there's no place to send them or to train them or to do any of that sort of stuff, there's not much they can do except maybe ones or twosies kind of attacks here and there. Um, so that, that's something that I think we, we, Right now we've, we've now, so I'm at, I'm at US Strategic Command again now. My, my last tour in the CIA, I, I spent my last three years as one of the CIA reps to Strategic Command. My dad was born in Omaha and I always kind of wanted to get back here uh, in cool. the Midwest. And uh, so I did that. And then what we would decide, you know, at that point, 2014, I put 15 years in, I would have had another 18 years in the agency to go. And I didn't feel like I could go live in DC for another 18 years <laughs> and do that again. Yeah. Um, so got out and uh, actually did, Five years working for a health system here in, in Omaha, Nebraska Medicine, as a project head, head of the project management team, which was great. But then I got suckered back into yeah, there we go. <laughs> you know, you never can get out of the gut doing government work. So sure. um, I actually do war gaming now oh, at cool. uh, U.S. Strategic Command. So that's that's fun. Um, you know, it's a mix of intel and then kind of. You know, and I was an instructor too as well for uh, at the CIA, so kind of combining both loves there. Um, but uh, you know, right now we're in we're kind of gone back to great power uh, conflict, you know, with Russia and China, and terrorism kind of taken uh, a back burner, and, and you know, except with Afghanistan, <laughs> obviously last year. But um, and it's, it's it's just like you you can afford to do that as long as we've we've denied these safe havens, and 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 that can be done in a number of ways, like Arab Spring was a mistake, you know, uh, those were secularized, they were tyrants, but they weren't Islamic tyrants. They, guys like all those North African, look, Qaddafi's the best example of that. You know, Qaddafi saw us roll into Iraq and went, whoa, I don't want that to happen to me. Here are all of my chemical weapons. Mm. You know, don't overthrow me. And then change administration and he's being dragged through the streets. And, you know, what sort of message does that send to, you know, the other leaders who are going to cooperate with us? And, and at the same time, then there's a power vacuum where you just kind of did these Islamists a favor. That's what they've been trying to do for years is overthrow this guy. Oh, that's a good point. And, you know, Egypt, you know, uh, Morocco, just you keep going right, right down the list in Libya. And, you know, that, that I think made it a little bit less secure. So, you know, I'm a realist from a political standpoint, you know, um, it takes time to build democracy and the culture of that in some, some areas. And, um, you know, so in the meantime, sometimes you got to be, you know, 
partners with guys that aren't the best guys, but you know, how is that helping our overall security? Cause they're like, like Saddam was to be frank, you know, he's controlling those guys and, and keeping the lid on because they're a threat to him too. Sure. Right. And, um, they don't know, like anarchy. I mean, we're talking about all these anarchists. The last thing a despot wants is lack of control. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's so they, like I said, they see them as a threat too. So they're going to, they're, they're going to tamper down and we don't have to at that point, you know? Um, and is it, is it not pretty? Of course, you know, um, you know, I, I've told my kids, I was like the, the greatest counterinsurgency operation in U S history is what we did to the native Americans. It, what it was, it was, was a counterinsurgency. Pretty. Yeah. It, it was a counterinsurgency operation. Yeah. Should we be critical of it? Yeah. But you know, it, it was a genocide. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but it tampered down the insurgency. Uh, you know, I hate to, it, it sounds really crass, um, but that's having come out of that counterinsurgency mode. That's kind of what you, what you think. Um, we should ask ourselves, are we willing to do to these people what we did to the native Americans? And if that answer is no, then maybe we don't do it. Yeah. Maybe we don't do it, you know, and you brought up Libya. I think we all need to think about how in the world, and we've mentioned the constitution a couple of times, I heard you say it. So the question is, how are we able to do military strikes and operations in Libya if we all sort of know Congress declares war, right? Mm. I think we all know that they didn't, the last time they actually declared war was World War II. Okay, but we know we've been in wars or conflicts since. And the, for those not familiar, I mean, the authorization of use of military force, Congress approved. It, and it was like, it, I'm looking at it now, 98-0 in, in the Senate and 420-1 to 1 in the House in 2001. And that was to go after perpetrators of 9-11, Al-Qaeda. And we have that document is still in existence today. And, we, and so Congress has said, hey, look, we're not going to make the decision anymore. We're going to allow the president around these terms, around Al-Qaeda and 9-11, the president who we don't want to give a lot of domestic powers to typically in American um, constitutional stuff. I'm and, but broad sort of foreign powers, we need to have, you know, war on terror, independent actors, all this sort of stuff. And so we have this document out there that that same document against Al Qaeda was used to go into Iraq in 03. It's not a separate document with all this new information, whatever information that you guys are talking about. Mm -hmm. And that same document it, is being used who knows where today? Um, and that was what was used in Libya, or if we want to go into Egypt, if we want to go into anywhere now, it's this catch-all document. And just, I don't know how many people are aware of that or not, but it is still alive. And this is how we're able to have our hands in all these sort of pots, I guess, from a constitutional standpoint, without the Congress actually having to um, make a decision. Yeah, no, that's that's 100% correct. And a lot of cases, Congress, you know, it, they, they do that on, on purpose. So it's not, hey, it's not on my watch now, or, you know, it's not my, my fault. Now, as I know from personal experience, having dragging guys up there every week in front of Congress, they love to criticize you and make headlines that way. Um, but then, yeah, you're right. You know, I, we, we just played a war game where it, we had a former congressman is kind of is the head of the, the, the good guys, the blue cell. And when the conflict started in the, in the game, it was kind of like, well, do we push for a declaration of war? And it's like, well, Congress will never do that. 
<laughs> why would they want to do it? <laughs> you know, yeah, they'll authorize action for a set time and, and then they'll extend it you know, afterwards so that we don't have to actually do it. That's kind yeah. of, oh, okay. I that's mean, that's the Mets and bounds of where we are today, right? It's just, I don't know. I don't know what it means for the next 20 years, right? I think we can, we're starting to get a feeling of the last 20. Um, as time goes, we'll get better feelings of it, but I don't know. It's still an active, breathing, live document. And I don't know. I find it concerning, especially after all we're talking about. And we'll just have to see how it plays out, I guess. Yeah, especially as, you know, as the Islamic threat has kind of diminished to a large extent. Yeah. Then how are you going to use that? What else are you declaring it to be a threat and and using some of the and and you're right. I mean, a, a, another buddy of mine, he's, he's always he you found out I was in the he was he's in the air. It was in the Air Force. So he's you know, he's a CIA guy, you know, and he's kind of a conspiracy theorist. He's always asking me about all this stuff, you know, like what, who killed JFK and where are the aliens and all this yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> they didn't give me access to that. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he was. But that was one of his, his like Patriot Act, you know that's still in existence another and one what are they going to use that again and at the time yeah we were like at the time when we were in it we were like thank you you know that makes it a lot quicker for us to target mm -hmm. um but yeah you know 20 years later do we need those authorities anymore um and like most things in the government once you create it they don't really go away sure yeah especially um, the shift of the fbi mission you were saying where they went from uh, figuring out crimes after they happen to now try to um, yeah, solve them before them. they happen. Now we're yeah. talking minority report. You know what I mean? And then, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, this is all a result of 9 11 for sure. You know, it was pre 9 11 and you were there um, with that world, what that was like, which has to be a completely different attitude. And then that sort of um, watershed moment. And then, probably, I think the next one is, I guess, the pandemic, probably. And so we're still kind of the waters are still, um, they're still rippling, of course, and they're still wake from it, but hopefully it's starting to resolve itself, as we mentioned, like with the, what goes back to what's a terrorist today in 2022 versus 2002. Yeah, that's what's, that's what's dangerous about using that word, you know, we're fighting terrorism, we're fighting terrorists. Well, that's a tactic. Who are we really fighting? Um, sure. and, and then that helps you to also figure out how to best combat them. Both using all instruments of national power, not just military. So yeah, that's what you know, we try to emphasize to our analysts. Be thinking about who are we fighting. Well, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to you, Jim. That was a lot of fun. It went long because we got carried away, but it's, it's yeah. Sorry about that. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't it's, apologize. Yeah, um, keep going. But thank you very much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to support the show directly, please consider becoming a patron at the link in our show notes, or you can head to our website at warstories.co. We'll see you next time.